This week on our podcast, we talk about the COP27 climate summit in Egypt. World leaders, policymakers, scientists, and activists descended to Sham El Sheikh to find solutions to the challenges the world is facing due to climate change. And these challenges have no simple solution. As we talk today, we are witnessing a humanitarian crisis due to drought in the Horn of Africa. Earlier, floods in Pakistan killed more than 1,700 people. Droughts and floods are just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much at stake. Hunger, poverty, lost livelihoods, conflict, displacement and gender inequality. To overcome these challenges, climate promises and not enough. We need to deliver on them. This is Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados at the opening of the summit. We have the collective capacity to transform. We're in the country that built pyramids. We know what it is to remove slavery from our civilization. We know what it is to be able to find a vaccine within two years when a pandemic hits us. We know what it is to put a man on the moon and now we put in Rover on Mars. We know what it is. But the simple political will that is necessary, not just to come here and make promises, but to deliver on them and to make a definable difference in the lives of the people who we have a responsibility to serve seems still not to be capable of being produced. Today I talk with someone who was in the audience during this action statement. Salim Muhuk. He is the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. We will talk about the perspective of developing countries. What did they learn from the climate summit? Are those nations who are largely responsible for the climate crisis paying for the damage? The 2015 Paris Agreement, countries established the lofty goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Where do we stand now? I am Vincent Eddy, and this is Making Waves. We need all hands on deck for faster, bolder climate action. A window of opportunity remains open, but only a narrow shaft of light remains. The global climate fight will be won or lost in this crucial decade on our watch. And one thing is certain, those that give up are sure to lose. So let's fight together and let's win. For the 8 billion members of our human family and for generations to come. You have just listened to the opening statement by Secretary General of the United Nations at COP27. We have heard lots of thought-provoking speeches, deliberations and dialogues on climate change and the way forward. 
Some world leaders said we cannot go wobbly on climate change. Others said spending on climate is the right thing to do. Salem Hawk, please tell us what the highlight of the conference was for you. Did you feel the spirit of unity and winning? Well, um, the 27th Conference of Parties, which was held in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, was, um, it was billed as an African COP, or Vulnerable Developing Countries COP. It was in the continent of Africa. And so the issues that were of major concern to the vulnerable developing countries were supposed to have been uh, given priority uh, by the host uh, country, Egypt, the incoming presidency, uh, which they did. And I would say the most significant outcome that took place at the beginning, getting it on the agenda, and at the end, getting an agreement, was the issue of finance for losses and damages that are now happening because of human-induced climate change. And that, to me, is a very, very significant uh, achievement and move forward because for many, many years, the vulnerable countries have been uh, asking for this, demanding it without success. The developed countries in particular have refused to discuss finance. Uh, They did that last year in Glasgow, where all the developing countries together asked for a Glasgow finance facility on loss and damage, which the developed countries turned into the Glasgow Dialogue on Finance for Loss and Damage, and the dialogue would be for three years. So they would talk for three years and not do anything. We found that very, very disappointing, and that was a big failure of COP26 last year from our perspective. So we uh, took it up again in COP27, initially put it on the agenda, and again, uh, as a new agenda under finance, we were successful in getting everybody to agree to put it on the agenda. And then we spent two weeks discussing it, negotiating it, and successfully in the end, agreeing, all all parties agreeing to set up this new uh, funding system. Now, there's, there's no money in it. There's no details yet. These will all happen next year in COP28. But we have agreed to move forward. There is, will be a transitional committee set up within the next few days who will be Uh, charged with coming up with ways forward. Uh, Where can the money come from? Who can give the money? Who would manage the money? Who would get the money? All very valid questions that were being asked, but they will now be addressed and negotiated uh, in the coming year uh, at COP28. So to me, that was the most significant outcome from the perspective of the vulnerable countries who had been fighting for this for a long time without success, finally succeeded in COP27 to get this. The 2015 Paris Agreement commits countries to limit the global average temperature rise to well below 2 degrees Celsius, above pre-industrial level, and to aim for 1.5 degrees Celsius. It's an indicator of the point at which climate impact will become increasingly harmful for people, and indeed the entire planet. Where do we stand now? Well, that was... uh the other side of the COP27 coin, which was less successful. The attempt to try and raise ambition by all countries to uh, reduce their emissions of greenhouse gases from fossil fuels did not succeed very well. Uh, We just managed to hold the uh, agreement to keep 1.5 in sight, but without any significant uh, change. The reason for that is the circumstances that the world finds itself in now particularly with the Ukraine-Russia war and the impact on energy prices 
and the need for many countries to revert uh, to fossil fuels uh, because of the price of natural gas and other fossils. Uh, but in my view, this is a temporary setback because at the same time, the investment and the cost and the technology and efficiency of renewable energies is moving ahead very, very fast. And it will make uh, fossil fuels redundant just on price. Nobody will invest in coal, nobody will invest in petroleum, and nobody will invest in natural gas within a matter of a few years' time as the, as the sustainable energy uh, systems come up to scale and become more and more uh, available, efficient, and cheap, which is happening every day. We are still fresh out of the pandemic, and the war is still ongoing between Ukraine and Russia. To cap it all, there is a global recession at the moment. Do you think the commitment and decision that emerged from COP27 would stand a chance in the face of this? Well, there are two answers to that. Firstly, we should not invest too much weight on a COP decision. The COP decision that mattered was seven years ago in Paris. What we have not done is abided by the decision. We have not done Every country has not done what it said it would do. And so it needs to do that. So the decision-making is not a collective global decision-making anymore. It's a country-by-country decision-making process. And every single country has to make their own decisions. And they are doing that to a large extent. Countries like China are moving into renewable energy in a big, big way. United States has just uh, passed legislation at the national level to do the same. Every single country is going to have to do that, including the Netherlands, including Germany, and they're all doing it. Now, had they done it 10 years ago, they would not find themselves in the crisis that they are now with the Russian natural gas. They should have done it 10 years ago. They're doing it now. That's a good thing. Let them do it now, and then within the next few years, they won't be beholden to Russian natural gas anymore. They put themselves into that trap and they got cut by that trap themselves. That was a big shot in the foot, said themselves. The developed countries shot themselves in the feet when they became dependent on Russian natural gas. Loss and damage is a phrase for the destruction already being wrecked by the climate crisis on lives, livelihoods and infrastructure. Vulnerable and poor countries which did little to cause the climate crisis, arrived with a determination to win a commitment from rich countries to compensate them for this damage. How does a fair and feasible loss and damage finance mechanism look like? Well, the first step which we achieved, which was a great success, was that we all agreed that this was necessary. All right, there are no more disagreements. There are no more fights. The fighting is over, whether we should have it, whether we should not have it, the who should pay, etc. Those are over. It should happen. All right. Now, the question then becomes a practical question of what is the best way to make it happen? And there are many options here. There is no single option. We must find ways to get the money. We must find ways to manage the money. We can use existing uh, pots of money. We can create a new pot of money. These are all options on the table. And then finally, whatever money we are able to get, we have to agree who should have access to that, who should be eligible to receive it. And so these are all now open questions, which, as I said, the Transitional Committee will address and come up with recommendations by next year. I can share my thoughts on what I feel should be done. The first 
with respect to who should pay, I think the polluters should pay. And by polluters, I mean not taxpayers or developed country governments. I mean the companies who are making exorbitant profits at the moment. You know, the fossil fuel industry is making a trillion dollars a year in pure profit from the global current situation. That's unconscionable. They are polluters. They are causing the problem and they are making huge profits and they're being allowed to make these profits. There are only a few dozen companies, by the way. We're not talking hundreds of companies. We're talking less than 100 companies. Each of these companies are registered in a country uh, under the jurisdiction of that country. Shell is registered in the Netherlands. BP is registered in uh, the UK. Aramco, Saudi Aramco is registered in Saudi Arabia. So if all these countries, there are only about 60 of them, agree to put a tax, let us say 10% only, just 10% tax on the profits, not even the whole profit, 10% of the profits, let them keep 90%, let them put 10% into a, a fund. As of today, we can all agree to do that. We can make it happen. And that will generate $100 billion from tomorrow from the polluting companies who are causing the problem. All right. And this is nothing to do with the consumer. The consumer is paying whatever the consumer has to pay anyway. These are profits that these companies are making from the consumers who are paying for their products. All right. So we have to be imaginative and apply the principle of polluter pays. These are polluters. They are causing harm. We must make them pay for that. So that would generate the money, all right? And then the question of who gets it, in my view, there must be a prioritization for the most vulnerable and poorest people on the planet who are suffering the impacts and who cannot pay, who are paying for the price, but they are not the ones who cause the problem. All of us, you, me, we are all polluters. We must help them. We must take it as our moral responsibility to find a way to help them. We must go out and find them and give them some money, whatever we can, from wherever we can raise it. So the priority must be the poorest people on the planet who are suffering the impacts of climate change at speed. We need to get it to them quickly, not make them apply for the money. That is not going to work. We have to go to them and give them the money. We have to be proactive. So basically what I'm saying is we need to think out of the box in terms of how do we get money, how do we manage money, and how do we deliver money? Because whatever we have at the moment isn't working. How can the fight against climate change become more inclusive, so as to include the most vulnerable, especially women and children? Well, that's really what we are fighting for. You know, this issue of loss and damage becomes very much a question of north versus south, money versus, you know, polluters versus uh, victims. But it is really a matter of global responsibility. Every single citizen on planet Earth is a polluter. Some are big polluters. You and I are big polluters. Some are small polluters. The poorest people on the planet are small polluters. They also pollute, but they are small polluters. So those of us who are big polluters are responsible for the impacts that are happening on the small polluters. And therefore, you and I, morally, must take some responsibility and find a way to help them. That is our moral responsibility, if we accept that we have a responsibility to do something. And I believe we do. And I believe that the COP27 decision was exactly that. It is an acceptance of a moral responsibility by all of us who are polluters 
to recognize that our pollution has victims and those victims are poor people, maybe living on the other side of the planet, maybe living next door to us, doesn't matter where they are. And we owe them something. We owe them to help them, to support them, deal with the impacts of climate change, which we are causing. And so the answer, therefore, is we need to all be thinking of ourselves as global citizens, tackling a global problem together. Some of us are suffering more than others. Some of us are causing the problem more than others. Those who have more responsibility of causing it owe it to those who have less responsibility of causing it but are suffering more to help them. That's just simple moral responsibility, whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or even an atheist. That is something that every religion teaches you. And even if you don't have a religion, it still teaches you that you should not cause harm to poor people. You should help poor people. You are from Bangladesh. Can you give us a concrete example of what we mean by loss and damage? Sure. So let me give you a very concrete example of uh, what we mean by loss and damage. Okay. So in the low-lying coastal zone of Bangladesh, which is extremely low-lying and susceptible to sea level rise and cyclones and floods, every day now, people are losing their livelihoods because of the sea level rise and salinity intrusion in the low-lying coastal zone. Now, they're trying to adapt. They're, you know, they do rainwater harvesting. We have adapted varieties of rice that can survive salinity. But adaptation has limits. We cannot adapt to everything. And we are reaching those limits. So now every day in uh, Bangladesh, between three to 5,000, we don't know the numbers, of climate migrants are arriving in Dhaka city by bus and by boat and by train and walking because they're losing their livelihoods, mostly from the low-lying coastal zone. And they're disappearing into the slums of Dhaka. I don't know how many there are where they are. The government doesn't know how many there are where they are. The Red Cross and the uh, the development agencies don't know where they are and who they are and where they are and how many there are. They are just falling through the cracks. But they are climate refugees. They are, we are causing them to lose their livelihoods. So we must take some responsibility. So I'll mention one thing that is being done that we are part of, but it's a big effort by many others. We call it developing climate-resilient migrant-friendly towns. These are about two dozen smaller towns, but not Dhaka City, where we are trying to build these towns into climate-resilient towns and also migrant-friendly towns. So these uh, climate refugees or climate migrants don't end up in Dhaka City. But we cannot force them to not come to Dhaka City. We can only incentivize them by giving them other opportunities, job opportunities, school opportunities for their children, health opportunities for their families. And that's what we are trying to do. We have identified these towns. We are working with the mayors and the people of the town to make them into migrant-friendly towns so that these climate migrants are given a place to come and stay, even if they are losing their livelihoods because of human-induced climate change. But at least they're not ending up in a slum in Dhaka. They might end up in a slum in, in Joshua or in uh, Mongla or in Kulna, but we look after them there. We'll prepare to help them. And that's what we are trying to do. These are internally displaced people, by the way. They are not crossed international borders. That's a second-order problem. When they cross international borders and end up in Europe and America, that's a, a second-order problem. But right now, within Bangladesh, we are trying to help them stay within the country. They may have to move from where they are today, but we will try and help them find another place to stay. What is your message to the next generation? Is there any hope in sight I'm, I'm very hopeful and, and I'm hopeful 
because of the next generation. And I do a lot of work with young people uh, all over the world. And my message is to everybody uh, as of today. This is a new message. It is true for this year, 2022 onwards in this new era of loss and damage from human climate change, as I call it. And that is that as of now, every single one of you young people are no longer primarily citizens of your own country, Netherlands or UK or America or Bangladesh. You are primarily a citizen of planet Earth. And as a planetary citizen, you have responsibilities to tackle a planetary problem like climate change. It's not the only planetary problem, but it is the biggest planetary problem. And you need to figure out what your role is in doing something about it. If you're a big polluter, reduce your pollution. If you live in a country that is a big polluter, get your government to reduce your uh, its pollution. Um, and at the same time, the global part of the citizenship is link up with fellow citizens, fellow young people around the world. It's now very easy to do. In fact, we have a, a beautiful example of this every Friday called the Fridays for Future, the school children who were inspired by the Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg, who started all by herself. You know, the, every Friday she would sit in front of the, the parliament in Sweden, in Stockholm, with a placard saying, you know, I'm going on strike. <laughs> Something needs to be done. And the kids are following her. Millions of them, including in Bangladesh, you know, thousands of our children come out on uh, on Friday and demonstrate. And they're going beyond demonstration now. They're doing activism. They're doing actions. They're doing activities. And that's really the way we need to head. We need to make them into the doers of tackling a, a climate change going forward. Because unfortunately, our leaders have let us down. Leaders promised to do things, but then they didn't do it. Many thanks to my guest, Salem Muhok for sharing his insights on loss and damage from the perspective of developing countries. Making Waves is a next reproduction and our editors today were Yup Janssen and Dennis Wonder. My name is Vincent Ede. To learn more about Next Blue, visit our website at next.blue. You can also follow our journey on all our social media platforms. Drop us a line. Our handle is at Next Blue Stories.